One of the delights uh, for me now living in New York has been the opportunity already to meet up uh, with several old high school friends uh, from long ago in Belfast who have been visiting the city either on business or on holiday, and uh, even the last few months I've met up with three of them, uh, the last of whom was uh, just a few weeks ago, a friend uh, called Tony McCauley, who was a few years ahead of me in school, but he and I sang in the school choir together, shared a few choir tours over in Scotland together. And Tony, since then, has written several novels about growing up in West Belfast during the Troubles, uh, novels that are both poignant and funny, but he was over here in New York for something of a book launch for his latest book that he's co-written with a Rwandan friend, a, a book entitled Kill the Devil. It's a story set in Rwanda uh, in the years following the horrific uh, genocide in that country. Some of you may recall uh, that in the space of 100 days in 1994, an estimated 800,000 Rwandans were brutally slaughtered by fellow citizens in a state-led genocide targeting the Tutsi uh, ethnic group. And Tony's novel, while fiction, is, is, really grew out of true stories that he heard on multiple trips to Rwanda, remarkable stories of forgiveness and reconciliation, and really quite stunning when you just stop to think about this, that here are people who saw their loved ones, spouses, children, family members, slaughtered before their very eyes, and yet who were able to get to the point of forgiving those who committed the atrocities. Now, some of us here may be uh, younger than we can, such that we don't necessarily remember all that happened to Rwanda, but there are similar stories of remarkable forgiveness uh, here in our own country. It comes to mind thing, people like the Amish in Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania, 2006, the relatives of the nine African-Americans shot dead in a church in Charleston, South Carolina, 2015, maybe other stories that come to some of our minds as well. But I'm guessing that for some of us today, the immediate question when we think about stories like that is, how, how does anybody do that? How in response to heinous and despicable deeds are the relatives of victims able to genuinely forgive the perpetrators? And in so many instances of this seemingly unbelievable forgiveness, when asked about how they were able to forgive, uh, the common factor expressed by so many of the forgivers was that it was out of their Christian faith. But the follow-up question to that is, well, how does that work? How does being a Christian particularly equip anyone to forgive another person in that kind of situation or indeed in any situation? And it's certainly not a merely hypothetical question this morning, is it? Because all of us have faced or are facing situations where we've been wronged, where we've been hurt, where we've been maligned, where we've been slighted. And if we're honest, we can find it extremely difficult to forgive, even if compared to the examples that I just quoted, our situations may, in comparison, not be anywhere near as horrific. Or maybe they are. Maybe for some of us they do feel as horrific because we were victims of an abuse of some kind that frankly, as a result of, we don't know if we even want to forgive, let alone if we're able to. A couple of weeks ago, we started our summer sermon series entitled The Greatest Stories Ever Told, 
where we're looking at various parables told by Jesus in the Gospels. Uh, Jesus referred to these parables, as we saw two weeks ago, as parables of the kingdom because he intends for these parables to open up for us the way that life is meant to be when it's lived under the rule and reign of the king of this kingdom, namely Jesus himself. Two weeks ago, we began by looking at the parable of the sower, and today we come to another well-known of the parables, uh, namely the parable of the unmerciful or the unforgiving servant. But before uh, we we think about that, we're going to think about it in three parts this morning, the difficulty of forgiveness, secondly, the motivation of forgiveness, thirdly, the litmus test of forgiveness. Before we look at those three things, we're going to look at the passage uh, together. It comes in Matthew 18, beginning verse 21. You'll find it on page 10 of your order of worship, page 823 in your pew Bibles. Hear now the word of God. Then Peter came up and said to him, that is to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him as many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This is the word of the Lord. It's trustworthy and it's true and it's given to us in love. Please pray with me. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be found acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So first, let's think about the the difficulty of forgiveness. Jesus tells this parable in response to a question that the apostle Peter asked him. It's a question about forgiveness that comes here in verse 21. At the start of our passage, Peter came up and said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? If the teaching of the rabbis at the time is anything to go by, Peter must have thought that he was being extremely generous here because the rabbis taught that you should forgive up to three times. Well, Jesus is about to show what he thinks about the rabbis and about the Peter because in verse 22 he says, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Some commentators suggest that correctly uh, translated here, Jesus actually says 70 times 7, 490 times. But whichever of those it is, Jesus was not intending to give an exact statistical count here. He's not saying that you're permitted to keep account of every time you've had to forgive this particular person, ticking them off on your little chart, and then when you get to the 491st time, you can really sock it to them. You can just give it to them. No, of course, he's not saying that. He's saying, actually, 
that our forgiveness of others is to be unlimited, unlimited. That forgiveness in the Christian life is to be a lifestyle, not a calculation. That in other words, if you're keeping count, you're not forgiving. That our forgiveness of others is to be unlimited. Now here's where some of us might start to sort of push back on Jesus and say, really, Jesus, unlimited forgiveness? Do you know this person that I have in my life? And Jesus says, no, unlimited. And you almost get the, the impression that Peter was pushing back and the disciples a little bit because Jesus, after he says this, then tells them this parable. And this might be a bit of a challenge for us to do because we've just read the entire parable and so we already know how it opens. But I want us to jump a few verses forward and begin with scene two in the parable. So just kind of pretend you don't know what happens in scene one for a moment. And we pick it up in verse 28. When that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him. Have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. So here's a servant who meets a second servant who owes him, it should be said, a fair chunk of money. Common labor in that day would have earned one denarius a day. It's always hard to work out the exact equivalent uh, to to modern, modern money, but if we were to take this laborer as earning, say, for example, $15 an hour, then the sum owed here was approximately in our money about $12,000. So it's not insignificant. It's a sizable debt. There may be some of you who've lent someone that kind of money, and you'd like the money back, right? You'd like the debt to be paid. But there are some of us who would say, well, it's not financial, the debt that I feel that is owed to me by some other people. It's a different kind of debt. It's the kind of debt I'm referring to due to hurts caused to us by others that have involved words that were spoken or deeds that were done and that on an emotional level feel equally like a very sizable debt. That debt may be due to mean words that were spoken about you in the workplace just this past week, or maybe a debt that relates to something that happened years ago, maybe decades ago in your life, to something that was done to you, and you've, you've never forgotten it, and nor have you forgiven it. But in either case, our inclination, humanly speaking, is to want payback, is to want retribution, so that while the debt that we're owed may be emotional rather than financial, some of us actually may have sympathy for this servant because we know what it is to be owed and we know what it feels like to want payback. And we know the difficulty when we're asked to forgive. Let me speak for a moment about another level of difficulty when it comes to forgiveness, which has to do with our own society's current conflicted attitude towards forgiveness. Tim Keller's final published book before his death in May was entitled Forgive, Why Should I and How Can I? And right at the beginning of the book, in the introduction, Keller addresses this conflicted attitude of our culture towards forgiveness. Firstly, he says there's a conflicted attitude because of confusion regarding the relationship between forgiveness and justice. Many people today argue that the so-called forgiveness culture helps abusers escape accountability. For example, in the cases of racial injustice, 
Some have warned that the requirement of forgiveness placed on victims is little more than a strategy for institutions and abusers to avoid accountability. Isn't it true, they say, that if oppressed groups of people forgive their oppressors, it just keeps the same broken system in place? But our cultural problem with forgiveness is not just confined to matters of race. Keller goes on to say that the Me Too movement has also struggled with this call to forgive, where many women ask, doesn't forgiving perpetrators only encourage continuing abuse? And those are very, very valid questions. We'll come back to them in a little bit. But then Keller points to another example of our society's conflicted attitude towards forgiveness. He references several recent scholarly works that highlight that in Western society, we now have this new inverted shame and honor culture where greater honor and moral virtue are assigned to people the more they have been victimized and subjected uh, by society or those in, in power to abuse. And as such, we've developed, writes Keller, a shame and honor culture of victimhood. Such a culture creates this society of constant good versus evil conflict over even the smallest of issues as people compete for status as victims or as uh, as defenders of victims. And such competition sweeps away any notion or any desire for forgiveness and reconciliation. Forgiveness is now seen negatively. It's seen as radically unjust and impractical as short-circuiting the ability of victims to gain the honor and the virtue that they deserve. And as a consequence, I don't need to tell you, you see it for yourself. Our society is full of countless broken and seemingly irreparable relationships. Now, both Christian and secular commentators have written about the the devastating uh, damage that would be caused if this was left unchecked, if we were to just reject as a society the importance and the place of forgiveness. But let's, for the sake of argument, say that while we do acknowledge the, the, the difficulty of forgiveness, we do also recognize there is a need for and there's a benefit of forgiveness. And if we grant that, then the question is, well, what resources do you and I have such that forgiveness could become a lifestyle in our lives and not just a calculation? And that brings us to our second point here, the motivation for forgiveness. This brings us back to the start of the parable. As we've already seen in the parable, Jesus doesn't start with the servant's act of unforgiveness. He starts with a king's act of forgiveness to this unforgiving servant. And in so doing, Jesus wants to open up for us what is the motivation of forgiveness. Verses 23 to 28, we're invited into a palace at the end of the financial year. And the king is in his counting house, counting up his money along with his treasury secretary. They're going through the books, the financial books, looking for unsettled debts. And suddenly, one name sticks out a mile. And it turns out it's the name of this servant, who we've just seen subsequently would demand payment for a debt owed to him by another servant. But his name stands out in the king's ledger, because in the column against his name, there is a figure. And it's not in terms of denarii, it's terms, in terms of talents, 10,000 talents. Talent was the greatest currency denomination in the empire at the time. 10,000 was the highest number for which the Greek language had a specific word. And suddenly the whole situation has changed, hasn't it? That the debt, while the debt to the servant might have seemed significant in our terms, $12,000, look at what the same servant actually owed to the king. 
Most commentators estimate his debt to the king in today's currency to literally be billions, billions of dollars. The servant clearly was not just the palace cook when we're talking about this kind of money, nor was this a, the possibility this was just a simple loan. No king would have lent that, this amount of money to a servant. The servant most likely was uh, someone who had been given a responsibility to rule over a, re- a region or a province who either by gross corruption or mismanagement had squandered a huge amount of money. It's an amount that he would never be able to pay back. So the king orders him and his wife and his children to be sold into slavery so that he might at least recapture some of the money. And so at this, the servant falls at the king's feet and he begs him to be patient so that he might be able to pay back some of the money. And it's at this point that we see the king's remarkable response in verse 27, out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Servant's only hope, only hope of avoiding lifelong slavery to the king was that the king would forgive him his debt, and that's exactly what the king does. But it's an act of astounding, remarkable, extraordinary generosity. Now, some of you are two steps ahead of me here, and you kind of see where Jesus is going with this, and it's possible that you don't really like where this is going, because you can see what Jesus is doing here. He's setting up a a picture where the king represents God, and where the servant represents you and me, and he's saying, you and I owe this colossal, immeasurable debt to God. And for some of us here, perhaps that just seems preposterous, that you would owe God this kind of debt. I mean, you're willing to admit that you're not perfect, but you try your best, and you figure that while you slip up here and there, certainly you're behaving better than a lot of other people you know here in the city. So when the Bible comes along and tells you that you're far worse than you ever thought, that you owe God this colossal debt that you can never pay, frankly, you're not that convinced. So let me spend a moment or two to try to persuade you and try to look at this nature of this debt with you. What is it that causes this debt And why is it so huge as Jesus describes here? The most basic level, the Bible tells us that God has created every single one of us who is here today, every person in this world, and he sustains our lives every second of every day. The breath that you are breathing right now is a gift from God. If he wasn't giving it to you, you wouldn't be alive right now. And so from that consideration alone, we're in his debt. And as our creator and our sustainer, God claims the rightful place to be the king of this world and the king of our lives, and therefore he deserves our ultimate obedience and devotion and love, but none of us have given him what he is owed. That's just the start of it. The preacher and the author Paul Tripp once illustrated the nature of our debt problem using categories that we actually find here in our parable. Tripp says that at the root of our debt problem, at the root of our sin, is that God calls each of us to be servants, but we all act like kings calls us each to be servants, but we all act like kings or queens, if you prefer. So often in our lives, we act like others should always defer to us, should listen to us, should serve us rather than us being servants to them. So for example, you're the passenger in a car on a, on a trip, and the person sitting in the driver's seat is telling you that, no, this is the way to go, and you're insisting, no, this is the way we should be going. This is all hypothetical, by the way. I'm sure none of you have ever had this experience at all. 
And you get, you're getting angry with this person because they're not listening to you. And then lo and behold, it actually turns out that the driver knew what they were doing and they're going the right way. But you got so upset. Why? Because we act like kings when we should be servants. Or imagine a plate of home-baked cookies being passed around a group of five-year-old boys. Do they, A, take the cookie that's closest to them? B, take the smallest cookie so someone else can have the biggest cookie? Or C, push all the cookies around with their grubby little fingers until they find the biggest cookie and then eat it in front of all their friends. Well, it's C, isn't it? Why? Because we all act like kings when we should be servants. Or here's an example that Tripp himself uh, gives. He says, imagine in the morning, everyone in your apartment, however many people there are, that are there, whether uh, roommates or family members, everyone's there in the morning trying to get out to work or to school. You arrive at the bathroom, you discover the door is closed and it's locked. So what is your immediate reaction? Your immediate reaction is probably not, I am so glad for the person who's in there that they're going to be ready for the day ahead of them. This makes me so content. No, your reaction is going to be, who's in there? To which they're probably going to say, none of your business. And you tell them, well, could you tell none of your business that I need to get in there? Because we all act like kings when we should be acting like servants. Now, here's the sobering point to all of this. Every time that we act like a king, when we should be acting like a servant, we actually are increasing our debt to God. Why? Because there's only meant to be one king in your life, and I've got news perhaps for some of us, it's not you. There's only one king in your life, and it's God. God's the rightful king because he made you, he sustains you. And you owe him everything. But every time you act like you deserve the biggest cookie, and every time you think that everybody should design the schedule for the bathroom around your life, it's a sign that you aspire to be the king. And with each and every claim to the throne, your debt increases, such that no matter what age you are here today, the debt that you owe to God is already sky high. You'll never be able to pay it. So how is your debt ever going to get paid? Well, it's going to require you, first of all, to give up your claim to be the king of your life, on the throne of your life, and you need to start behaving as a servant. And the only thing that will change a servant from acting like a king, according to the Bible, is when you experience the amazing love of the king who became the servant. Which takes us back to verse 27 again. Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. This is the gospel. Like the king to this servant, God has taken compassion on us. He's offered to cancel the debt of our sin and to let us go. However, when a debt is canceled or forgiven, it doesn't just vanish, does it? It doesn't just disappear into thin air. Someone has to absorb the cost. So if we're not going to absorb the cost, well, who is going to? And the answer is it's the king who has become a servant for us. It's Jesus himself. That the reason our debt can be forgiven is because on the cross, Jesus paid the entire debt. But that's what the cross is all about. Jesus was paying the debt that we could never pay. So as we'll sing in our final song this morning, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, and he washed it white as snow. That colossal as our debt is, out of reach, beyond our capability, he paid it. He paid it for every careless word, every mean thought, every harsh attitude. Every time you acted like a king and not as a servant, 
It was all there on the debit side of your account. But to trust in Jesus is to trust that when he died, he wrote in huge letters across that page in the ledger, paid in full, canceled debt. And it's this forgiveness of that colossal debt that each of us owe to him that melts our hearts and gives us the motivation and the resources to forgive the lesser debts that are owed to us. So that's the difficulty of forgiveness, the motivation for forgiveness. But lastly, we need to spend a few moments on the litmus test of forgiveness. Jesus closes out this parable with the most sobering of warnings. Look at verses 34 to 35. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. He's talking about the unforgiving servant here. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now, some of us have struggled with these final words of Jesus here because it almost sounds like Jesus is saying, if you forgive others, then God will forgive you. It sounds like we we earn God's forgiveness. So it sounds like, you know, if you forgive your colleague for slagging you off on a Thursday afternoon, well, then God, to even things up, will forgive you on Friday when you yell at the kids. You know, you forgive and then, okay, God says, I'll forgive you. But if that's what Jesus is saying here, it it goes right in the opposite direction to everything else that we read throughout the Bible, because God's forgiveness always comes first. And that's the thrust of the parable here, that having been forgiven much, we are then to forgive much. But what Jesus is saying here is that if you will not forgive someone for something that they have done, It is an extremely serious matter, and it probably means that you have not experienced and tasted God's full forgiveness yourself. You haven't seen the enormity of the debt that you owe him and that through Jesus he has paid. Jesus' sober warning about the non-negotiable requirement of forgiveness does, however, raise some questions for us, doesn't it? So let me come back to the earlier objection some people make about this culture of forgiveness because they argue it enables abusers to avoid accountability and to be able to continue abuse. So if Jesus is demanding that I always, always, always have to forgive, does that mean that I just should be happy to forego any kind of justice or retribution or accountability? And the biblical answer to that is no, no. This is not the only passage in the Bible that speaks about forgiveness. Indeed, here's a somewhat complimentary passage to ours that comes in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17, where Jesus says this. This is Luke 17, 3 to 4. He says, pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Notice that Jesus says here, besides the instructions to forgive, he also commands us that if someone sins against us, we are to rebuke that person. It's a word that means to confront. In other words, in Jesus' kingdom, forgiveness and justice are not incompatible at all. In fact, they fit together like a hand in a glove. One of the best examples of holding justice and, and forgiveness together is in the story of Rachel Den Hollander, the former gymnast who was sexually assaulted multiple times by the USA Gymnastics uh, physician Larry Nassar. Some of you will remember this story. 
In 2018, she broke through the wall of silence, the wall of official denial, was the first woman to publicly accuse Nassar, which led to uh, eventually to hundreds of other women coming forward who were treated by him with their own stories of abuse and assault. And Den Hollander is a Christian, and in her memoir entitled, What is a Girl Worth?, she recounts her extensive inner wrestling after she became aware of what had been done to her by Larry Nassar. She wrote, I did want to forgive Larry, but I didn't want my forgiveness to be used as an excuse to act as if something terrible wasn't really that bad. And what helped Den Hollander work through this struggle was actually a fuller understanding of the full implications of the cross of Jesus, that the cross of Jesus shows that God is committed to both forgiveness and to justice. That when Jesus died on the cross, he, he, of course, opened up the door for forgiveness for us, which we've been thinking about, but it also showed God's commitment to justice, that sin and evil are not trivial in his sight at all, and that he is committed to mete out perfect justice. And all of that led Den Hollander, while pushing for the full weight of the law against to fall on Larry Nassar, and trusting in the final perfect justice of God. It led her to be able to address him in court with these words. She said to him, I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so that you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. Another question, as well as how justice and forgiveness fit together might, that might come up in response to Jesus' sobering warning here about the litmus test of forgiveness is this, what if I don't feel like forgiving? Wouldn't it be disingenuous for me to forgive this person when I don't really want to? And Jesus' answer to that question is no, it would not be disingenuous because while Jesus teaches us that forgiveness is to be a lifestyle, not a calculation, that lifestyle actually starts with a decision, not with a feeling. Look again at verse 35. Jesus says, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now, we read those last three words from your heart, and we, we think, well, we're dealing with the realm of emotions here. We're dealing with feelings here. But in the Bible, the heart means the control center of your life. It's, it's, it's the operating system. It's, it's our will. It's what drives our emotions and our, and our words and our thoughts. So that to forgive from the heart is to make a determination from the will, from the depths of our being, where we commit to not hold on to bitterness and resentment that we commit that forgiveness will be granted before it's necessarily felt, where it will be a practice before it might be a feeling. So that when you forgive someone, you are not saying to them, you know, all my anger is now gone. What you're saying when you forgive is, I commit to seek to treat you the way God has treated me. I will seek to remember your sins no longer. That doesn't mean that I don't recall them, I do but it does mean that I'm not going to act on the basis of them. 
Um, but when you do that, well, well, does that mean that the feelings of resentment and anger might return at times? Yes, probably it does. It's, it's unrealistic to think that once I decide to forgive, the feelings will never return. But when those feelings come back, that's not a, a sign of unforgiveness. Rather, it's in a sense a test to see, okay, well, what am I going to do with those feelings? Will I let them run riot so that they now govern my life? Will my heart be driven by these feelings? Or am I committed to make sure that my heart is governed by this gospel of a God who has forgiven me so, so much. And so we resolve based on our experience of the enormity of God's forgiveness of us to not go with our feelings, but to forgive as Jesus commands us to do here. What does such a commitment to forgive another person look like in practice? It means that in light of God paying the debt that you owe him, you commit to pay down yourself the debt the other person owes you. And your feelings are going to be telling you that you want to make the other person pay down the debt through withdrawing your friendship from them, from ins through insults that you might throw their way, or gossip or slander. Your feelings will tell you that those, if you do those things, they will make you feel better, but your feelings are lying to you. Because as Nelson Mandela once put it, hating someone is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die from it. A decision from the heart means to forgive means that though you are tempted to, you are committed to refrain from seeking to hurt the other person. Though you might be tempted to, when that other person comes up in conversation with a mutual friend, you will refrain from slandering that other person because you're going to pay the debt down. You're not going to make them pay it down. That though your reputation may be hurt, you don't try to get it back at the expense of the other person by damaging their reputation. That forgiveness is a commitment to refrain from making the other person pay down the debt, but rather to absorb the cost yourself as, as difficult as that can be sometimes. But the good news is some of you, I am sure, can testify is that as time goes on, your determination, your decision to forgive is actually followed by your feelings. And you find your anger and your resentment recede. But it's a process. Forgiveness is a fruit of the gospel, and fruit takes time. This is not an overnight transformation. In light of that, let me finish with this story. There's a story of a traveler going through uh, the jungles of Myanmar on one occasion. He's, he has a guide with him. They come to this river, shallow and wide. They wade their way through to the other side of the river. But when they come out of the river, the traveler looks down and he discovers on his torso and his legs that there are all these leeches that have attached to him. And his first instinct is to just grab them and pull them off. But the guide stops him and warns him that pulling the leeches off like that will still leave tiny pieces of them under the skin, and eventually infection will set in. He says the best way to rid the body of the leeches was, is to bathe in a warm balsam bath for several minutes. That soaks the leeches, and soon they will release their hold on your body. When you've been significantly hurt by another person, you cannot simply yank the hurt from yourself and expect that all of the bitterness and the resentment and the anger and the emotion is suddenly gone because the feelings are still, at the very least, going to be there under the surface. But gradually they will release their grip on you 
as you're willing to bathe in the soothing waters of God's extravagant love for you through Jesus. And you and I have at our disposal all the riches that are found in Jesus to those who put their trust in him. We sang of those riches in our opening hymn this morning, that if you are a Christian, you have been ransomed, that is rescued at a price. You have been healed, that God has restored you into his family, and you have been forgiven. God has forgiven you all of your sin. And the more you and I soak in those realities, the more we will find that forgiveness indeed can be a lifestyle and not a calculation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we hear this parable and they are challenging words for all of us and they are far from hypothetical because all of us know the challenges, the difficulty of forgiving others. And for some of us, even as we've been thinking about this parable this morning and the video of our mind has appeared to the faces of certain people for whom we either have just decided we can never forgive or we struggle to forgive. And yet here you have reminded us that you have given us all the resources to forgive, even as we might seek justice and accountability. And as we prepare to come to this table, Lord, it is another reminder of all that you have done for us, that you have paid it all, that our debt is paid in full, that this, this, this bread and this cup remind us of all that you did in order to pay our debt so that our ledger might be wiped clean. And so we pray that as we receive these elements this morning, that they would only encourage us and shape us and mold us into the people that you call us to be, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.